we really need to get together. Yes, let's get it on the, on the calendar, let's get it on the schedule and make it happen soon. Sounds great. How many times over the last month or two have you had some similar exchange with somebody that you've maybe run into while out running errands or, or a, a catching up text that, that they sent to you? And then I, I guess the follow-up question is, how many of those exchanges where you both shared this idea that you'd, you'd get together or desired to do so, did you actually do it? And what is it that determines whether or not you're going to follow through on that agreed-upon uh, desire to get together? Is it if, if somebody is persistent enough, if they pester you enough, finally you'll just agree to it so that they stop? Or did you just politely agree to that when you actually had no intention whatsoever of getting together with that person? In fact, it's kind of just a cultural thing now. Sociologically, we, it's like saying, hello, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? Hey, let's get together. Yeah, great. Neither one of us plans on doing it, but we'll, we'll talk like we do. Or what does it take if it's somebody that you value that relationship or somebody that is important to you that you actually take out your phone or your planner right then and there and you do put it on the calendar and you do stick to it? Now what if, what if you got a text directly from God that said, hey, we should really get together soon? And you said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's get it on the calendar. Would you agree to that, intending to ghost God afterwards? Or would you have every intention of following through with that commitment and, and putting it on the calendar? Well, I've got good news for you this morning. You don't even have to worry about clearing your schedule because it's already set for you. Every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, God is interested in hanging out with you right here in this very place. So you don't have to actually go through all of the, the labor or the pain of trying to set aside some time for God. He's already done that 9 o'clock every Sunday morning right here at Shepherd of the Hills. As we continue this series, Rethinking Religion, this morning we're focusing on our relationship with God as it pertains to or is reflected by worship and what we think of worship and its role in our lives. Now, there might be some of you that are thinking, well, do I really need to sit through a, a whole sermon on worship, on going to church? I'm pretty sure I know what the answer is going to be. God wants you to go to church every Sunday. Amen. Well, if you think that, you'd be wrong. Sort of. Well, does God want his people to gather together? Yes, but, but is God's goal to have 100% attendance from 100% of every member of every Christian congregation 100% of the time each and every Sunday? Would that satisfy what God is looking for in his people? No. No, it wouldn't. Go back to that individual, whether it's hypothetical or you can actually think of an exchange that you had with somebody recently, and you did follow through and you did schedule time together with them at your favorite spot. And you spent 60 minutes catching up with them. And the whole time, during that 60 minutes, she or he was on his laptop, scrolling through his phone, reminding you that, that they're definitely paying attention while they're clearly distracted by those other things. 
Would you be filled up with that, that time spent with your friend or would you look back and say, what a waste of my time? I think we all know the answer, right? And so when we consider uh, worship and its role in our lives and, and the importance of gathering together, we also recognize that there are some very big issues with even regular worship if we are not careful. In other words, what is, what is God really interested in? What he's interested in from his people is that when we show up, we show up. Because you can be a regular, every Sunday attender, and not really show up. Maybe for some of you, you had parents that instilled in you on an early, at an early age the importance of worship. So it wasn't even a negotiation in your house growing up. It was Sunday morning. You knew what was going on. You were going to church. And I would contend that is arguably one of the greatest gifts your parents could give you. So thank them if they did instill that in you. And try to be those parents today, even if you didn't have those kind of parents. However, we also have to acknowledge that along with that very important habit of every Sunday morning worship, as it is with any habit, when it becomes routine, we have to guard against going through it on autopilot. Right. And there are other reasons that we can be distracted in worship, even if we're regular every Sunday worship. If I'm here because it's really more about fulfilling a requirement than it is finding refreshment. If I'm here because it's kind of my job, I've taken it on myself to really police or pay attention to who is and who isn't there every Sunday. If I'm here to see if maybe by chance it'll be a hymn that I really like singing. If I'm here to see, make sure the pastor doesn't run too long in his sermon and that we're still doing the right things that we should be in worship, I can show up in all of those cases without really showing up. So no, God isn't just interested in, in his people showing up every Sunday, unless we're here to show up. Now, here's the thing, that doesn't let those who aren't here on a Sunday off the hook, does it? Because that would be just as easy to sit home uh, in, my, in my bed or my favorite chair on a Sunday morning and say, see, that's why I don't go every Sunday. Look at all those hypocrites. Look at all those reasons that, that, that people can, can show up in church, but, but God's no more thrilled that, with them than he is with me being at home. Well, wouldn't you agree that, that it's probably easier to do kind of a, a course correct on somebody who's established a habit of being here regularly and check their motivation or their reason for being here than it is to deal with somebody that, that not only doesn't have that habit but doesn't see the, the need or, more importantly, the value of being together in God's house? Yes, there are no shortage of very bad reasons that continue to be offered for not being in God's house on a Sunday morning. But you know what? We also have to acknowledge that there are plenty of good reasons why people aren't in God's house on Sunday. Can you really blame somebody for not being in church on a Sunday if whenever they show up, the pastor or anybody else just guilt trips them about how infrequently they are there? Oh, nice to see you. Where were you last Sunday? You should really be here more often. Can you really blame somebody for not being in, in worship more often if they have some negative past experience with how the church has treated their family, perceived or not, 
that has never been dealt with? Can you really blame somebody for not being regular in worship if when they arrive, the reception is cold and they receive daggers because somebody caught them sitting in their seat? Can you really blame somebody for not coming to church if all of they hear in the message is they're not good enough for God, try harder and show up next week and we'll see how you measure up then, and not even hearing the name of Jesus or the forgiveness or the grace that he came to bring? Can you really blame people for not being in church for those reasons? And all of this is simply to say, Though on any given Sunday, most people who walk through that door and step foot into any church, let alone ours, while they may be empty-handed, don't underestimate the amount of baggage that they may be carrying with them. Instead of being quick to judge, let's maybe take a page out of the rejoicing that we see in Luke's lost parable from Luke chapter 15 and rejoice every time anybody sets foot in God's house. Now, I've already talked for quite a bit this morning. You may have realized, boy, he hasn't even mentioned the text. He hasn't even referred back to the Bible. And there's a reason for that because I want to make sure that when we're talking about worship, that we are ready to hear what God has to say for the right reasons. And oftentimes, when you're talking about worship and church to people who are in church, it's very easy for us to tune it out as if that message is obviously for those who aren't here. But if we're ready to hear what God has to say to us, not just to pass on some information that I can share with somebody else who needs it, then let's look at these words of John. You see, in in the accounts that is described for us in John's Gospel, you see a Jesus who is very familiar with people who were in church for the wrong reason. John described it in the second chapter, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Do you remember when, as a boy, Jesus was the Kevin McAllister of his household and was left not home alone, but in the temple alone? And he was with the religious leaders digging into some very deep spiritual conversation. What a contrast we have here from the boy Jesus who delighted to be in his father's house, who now was in this house seeing what he was seeing. This sacred space turned into a strip mall where business was being conducted. As opposed to that that very deep spiritual conversation, the question and answer that went back and forth with religious leaders where Jesus himself was helping facilitate that discussion and and yes, even answering questions for, for the religious leaders. By their question, it becomes clear that the sellers there didn't feel that they were in the wrong. In fact, they had probably been doing this long enough to deceive themselves that that they weren't doing anything wrong and that, in fact, Jesus was the one who needed to answer for his actions that day. 
They likely justified their behavior, their vending and selling on the basis of, well, it's Passover. We are simply providing a service. The Passover would have involved all kinds of people traveling all kinds of distances from all kinds of countries. So to simply take the animals and sell them, those that would have been used for sacrifice, was much more convenient than somebody having to travel and bring their own animals with them for sacrifice at the Passover. So they reason, we'll just provide them in the temple courts. And of course, if you're coming from some foreign land, you would have some other currency. So conveniently, there were money changers who would take your, your currency and exchange it for what you needed to be able to buy those animals for sacrifice. So in their minds, they weren't doing anything wrong. The problem is Jesus can see more than just what's in our minds. He could see what was in their hearts. And he knew it wasn't pure. He knew that they weren't there simply to serve their neighbor, but rather that they were there to serve their greed. They saw this as an opportunity for some profits. And, and not that God is against working hard to generate income or working hard or a side gig, but he is, does have an issue with using his house for that purpose to make money when his house is the place where he only longs to give away for free. So what is it exactly that God wants if this wasn't it from these Jewish sellers and, and vendors? Well, that's really shown to us in the verse that follows as uh, the, the disciples even recalled the verse that was quoted. Zeal for my house, for your house rather, will consume me. Jesus' actions were not out of this sometimes anger that we want to justify. It's okay to be mad and angry because look at Jesus. Zeal is a better word and a better understanding. Passion for his father's house. That Jesus had a heart for God's house of worship. That is what God wants from us. A heart for his father's house. He desires that, that we have that, that zeal of Jesus to be here and, and to receive from him all of the good things that he longs to give to us and to dole out to us. He wants a heart that is in love with him, that, that loves him and values him and treasures him more than anyone or anything else in this world. You think of the two young lovebirds. Love that is blossoming and, and they have each other on their minds and their thoughts all the time. Every, every thought is about when we're going to be together again, how we're going to spend time together. That kind of love is, is what God wants for him. He wants us to have that for him. Now, I acknowledge that, that there's been some suggestions that that isn't really the kind of message that, that men need to hear today. Because men aren't all about emotions and, and lovey-doveyness and talking about hearts. But can you really argue with, with Jesus' zeal and his passion and his heart? The same Jesus who came in and flipped up tables? That's pretty manly, isn't it? And speaking especially to the men gathered this morning, there's room for us to grow in demonstrating that kind of passion and that kind of heart for the Lord. Imagine if that was the most attractive quality that your spouse or girlfriend or others saw in you. It was not that you, you dress well or have a nice car or a great job, 
But man, it is so obvious that he has such a passion and zeal for his Savior. Now, as you consider that, that kind of zeal and passion, it's lacking, isn't it? And, and not just in you, it's, it's lacking in me too as a leader in my own house and, and marriage. And so I don't want you to, to walk out here this morning saying, oh great, I'm supposed to be more zealous and passionate. I'm supposed to be the spiritual leader of my house and I don't measure up. Do you realize why that is so essential that we, we come here to gather what Jesus has to offer to us? That quote, zeal for your house will consume me, is not God saying, see Jesus, be more like him. It's God saying, see Jesus, he's everything you are not. So when you wake up on a Sunday morning and you don't feel like dragging yourself out of bed, thank God that you have a Savior who perfectly embodied passion and zeal and heart. When you are are dragging yourself to gather uh, for a Bible study, or anything else around the Word of God, thank God that you have a Savior who perfectly was excited about any opportunity uh, to be in his Father's house and in his Word. We call this the the active obedience of our Savior Jesus. It's not just that he went to cross to, to pay for our sins, to pay for everything that we're not, but it's also that he became what we could never be. So when we talk about keeping the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. In other words, love God's word and love worship. Jesus did that perfectly for you. It's already satisfied. You don't have to measure up. Jesus already did for you. Where you lack passion, zeal, and heart for the Lord, Jesus fulfilled that perfectly. And he wasn't done there as he demonstrated to to those listening to him who demanded a sign. Jesus went on to explain to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, as they understood it, he was talking about the physical building that they were gathered in right at that moment, the courtyard of the temple, and said, 46 years, how are you going to do this in three days? John gives us the explanation so that we understand it rightly. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus' zeal, his passion, he had a a heart for his father's house. But it wasn't all that he had a heart for. He had a heart for you and me, which is why he allowed his body, that temple, to be crucified as the perfect sacrifice in your place. And then he didn't just predict these words. He didn't just foreshadow or foretell that they were going to happen. He carried them out. He delivered on this promised sacrifice, the same promise that God had been giving to his people for generations upon generations. And he fulfilled it on Good Friday. That temple was destroyed. His body was crucified. He died in your place and mine. And then that that body was resurrected, which gives us the assurance that that payment that he offered for us is fully acceptable to the Father, meaning there's nothing left for you to do. You don't have to measure up. Your sins have been washed away and forgiven, and your righteousness 
your perfection, your holiness has already been met in Christ Jesus. That brings us to the why. As we rejoice that, that Jesus has everything that he has done, the what that he has carried for our, his, our, our perfect zeal and passion, but he is also our Savior who has paid for our sins. So, so now why worship? Well, there are a lot of reasons that I could provide for you. A lot of blessings and benefits of gathering together regularly with, with God's people in God's house around God's word. But there's really just one why and everything else flows from it. And that why is Jesus. That why is, is the one who made the greatest sacrifice imaginable for you and me. As great as his heart was for his father's house, that doesn't begin to hold a candle for his heart toward you. His love, his grace, his forgiveness that are limitless and never-ending. And he longs to dispense that to you each and every time that we gather here in this place. Because he knows what is waiting for you out there in the world each week as you go and, and you deal with, with a sin-infested world. He knows because he lived in this sin-infested world and overcame it for us. His love for you is demonstrated by the, the very fact that for every time that our, our physical bodies have been here and our hearts have been absent, for every time that we have been indifferent to worship or treated it as an optional thing, all of that has been washed away. So let Jesus be the why as we gather in his house to, to come clean with our sins so that, that we might leave with the clean hearts that he gives to us freely and fully by his grace. As I said, there's a, a lot of reasons that I could give you that are, are beneficial for gathering here on a regular basis each and every week. But there's really only one and everything else flows from that. Let Jesus be enough. And then take him up on his standing invitation each week to get together. Amen.